0: Well, let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Our great God, Jehovah, who is and who was and who is to come, we desire not to boast in riches or strength or wisdom, but in that we know you, Jehovah our God, full of loving kindness and judgment and righteousness and who takes delight in these things, and in those who boast in the Lord. We pray that you would instruct us concerning your great and glorious name, and that we would better understand you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. We continue our lecture on the names of God, in particular the name Jehovah. Just to recap what we considered last time, hopefully this will finish up this particular aspect of the names of God. Uh, But last time we, from an exegetical standpoint, examined some passages from the book of Exodus, in particular Exodus 3. Verses 13-15, through 15, Moses at the burning bush and the angel of the covenant appearing to Moses. Uh, Jehovah himself revealing his identity, his name as I am who I am or I am or the name that derives from that Hebrew notion of to be uh, the one who is, was, and is to come. That name is Jehovah. He says... Verse 15, this is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. We consider the fact that God reveals himself through his name or his names and his titles. Uh, More broadly speaking, God's name can be used as a reference to his self revelation in general. Uh, Psalm 138 says that God has uh, magnified his word above all his name. In other words, all the things God uses, the means of revelation that he uses to disclose himself to us are classified as his name. And uh, the most clear and powerful means of self-revelation that's magnified above all others is his word. And so when we speak in the shorter catechism of reverently using God's name... Uh, You'll recall that it refers to God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works as the things that we're to treat in a reverent way. God reveals himself, therefore, through his name. And so in Exodus 33, we saw that when Moses asked God, please show me your glory, that God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of Jehovah before you. And so God graciously reveals himself to Moses, not his inner essence, but God reveals himself, truly, through declaring his name. And so Moses is in the cleft of the rock. Uh, We're told that Jehovah descended in the cloud, stood there with him and proclaimed the name of Jehovah. Uh, Jehovah passed before him and proclaimed, Jehovah, Jehovah God, merciful And gracious, long suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, goes on to speak of his mercy and his justice, to which Moses bows his head in worship as his response. So we've seen God reveals himself through his name or names. Uh, God's name, just like human names, the whole idea of a name is it it might uh, identify someone, say something of their identity, their characteristics, uh, their achievements. Somebody might get a nickname because of something that they've accomplished. Uh, their reputation. In the scriptures, we have names like this. The name Nabal, which means fool. And uh, his name was Nabal because folly is with him. The name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. It literally means Jehovah saves. Jehovah is salvation. The name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Uh, perhaps he was given that name as a child, uh, but it might have been something that he received later as a result of people observing his character and his conduct. Certainly we have every reason to think that he wasn't just named that, but that he was a true son of encouragement, a source of encouragement to others. Uh, And so God's names reveal who he is, and in particular God's special name is Jehovah, his Memorial to All Generations. This in Hebrew is yud Vavhe. vav It's the Tetragrammaton, the four letters that is often translated in our English versions as L-O-R-D, Lord in all caps, in the Old Testament. Uh, we're going to move on and look at some other names uh, in future lectures. Elohim, which is, means God in Hebrew, the plural and yet applied to the one true God, and the name Adonai, which simply means Lord and Master. But we're considering that everlasting memorial uh, derived from the notion of I am who I am, God's eternal existence, his transcendent holiness, self-existence, self-sufficiency, his eternality, his immutability, I am that I am, and that name is Jehovah. We considered all those things. Uh, I do want to read a quotation from the great Puritan Old Testament scholar Ainsworth in his annotation on the Psalms. He says this concerning the name Jehovah. Quote, The force of this name, Jehovah, and he uses an I, which we said is interchangeable with the J in uh, more archaic English. So, for instance, King James Version 1611 would have uh, had an I or a J interchangeably, and they probably would have said Yehovah, but in any case, it's come down to us as Jehovah. Uh, he says, "...the force of this name, the Holy Ghost, openeth up, he that is, that was, and that will be, or is to come." Revelation 1, 4, and 8. Revelation 4, verse 8. Revelation eleven seventeen, 17. And Revelation 16, 5. "...and the form of the Hebrew name implyeth so much." yeah being a sign of the time to come and let me pause here different scholars associate different syllables of jehovah with different tenses of the verb to be i've noticed that in some of the things so that they're in the same church different pew uh pretty much all agreeing that it comes from is and was and is to come in hebrew but he says uh yeah or jeh ja, being a sign of the time to come Jehovah, he will be, ho, of the present time, hove, he that is, and va, of the time past. Hava, he was. And all that to say, he's, just a, he's, he's drawing it from these uh, to be verbs in Hebrew. He says, It importeth that God is, and hath his being of himself, from before all worlds. Isaiah 44, 6. That he giveth being or existence unto all things, and in him are all and all consist, Acts 17:25, that he giveth being unto his word, affecting whatsoever he hath spoken, whether promises. He cites some verses, or threatenings. He cites some verses. It is in effect the same as Eje or Eye, which is the Hebrew word that's used in Exodus 3 when it says, I am has sent me to you. That's shortened uh, short form. Shortened form. I will be or I am as God calleth himself. Exodus 3.14. End quote. So it derives from I am that I am or I am in Hebrew. That's the idea. Now, we said that the name Jehovah serves to magnify the qualities of God's being as well, not just the essence of his being, eternal, unchangeable, infinite, not just those transcendent, incommunicable attributes that really don't have any manifestation in his creatures, but uh, they also serve to magnify the qualities of his being. Uh, His holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, Uh, his wisdom, his power the name Jehovah, which speaks of his transcendence and his essence, is then applied to magnify the significance of those areas of his character that are revealed in creation. In other words, if you look at Exodus 33 and 34, uh, it says he'll show his glory and all his goodness. So Jehovah shows the glory of his goodness. Jehovah, Jehovah God, if you're thinking of a mathematical equation, comes before the parenthesis and then all of the communicable attributes that are reflected in the image of God or we could say uh, all the qualities of God's being or his moral perfections are put inside the parenthesis and uh, the the statement Jehovah, Jehovah God sort of uh, informs and is distributed uh, to magnify each one of those qualities inside the parenthesis. Uh, tells us something of his life, his intellect, his will. What kind of God is he? And Jehovah adds to that, that transcendence. So we then proceeded to consider the dogmatic and polemical aspect. In other words, the doctrine and the controversial questions that flow out of these biblical teachings about God's name, Jehovah. And we decided to combine the doctrinal and polemical aspects because in this case very often the key doctrines happen to dovetail with the the disagreements that occur. So we're just going to look at these things similar to Francis Turretin in his uh, Institutes of Alenctic or Polemical Theology. He just deals with all the subjects of theology in terms of these controversial questions. That's what we're going to do. And we already considered the first question, are god's names essential to his being or simply a gracious and accurate means of self-revelation to his creatures uh, last time we affirmed the latter to be the case that god's name is not essential to his being it's revealed in human language in hebrew language so it's it's a, a means of self-revelation that is accurate it genuinely tells us something true about god in himself but it's not as though god in himself, in the persons of the Trinity, speaks Hebrew and has this name with these Hebrew syllables, uh, it's clear from Exodus that God, it says, he will be gracious to whom he'll be gracious and merciful to whom he'll be merciful in revealing these things. So it's, it's a free and gracious self-revelation. It's not essential to God. Secondly, we asked, is the name of Jehovah applied to God alone? And we affirmed this. Psalm 83, verse 18, along with numerous other passages, you alone are Jehovah. So the word God can apply to civil magistrates. It can apply to the angels. It can apply in many respects, Elohim, to those that are mighty and strong. But the name Jehovah is applied to God alone. We showed how it applies to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Thirdly, we asked, is the name Jehovah applied to all three persons of the Trinity? Okay, there. As I said, we affirmed that and we proved it from the Bible. Fourthly, was the name Jehovah unknown prior to the burning bush? We said that we deny that and we uh, cross-referenced Exodus 6, 2, and 3, which says that uh, that God had not revealed himself as Jehovah previously to the burning bush. But then we, we cross-reference that with some other passages from Genesis to show that it, God was known by that name, but he wasn't known by that name, if you will. He was called by that name, but he, they didn't understand uh, the, 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 the same sort of insight and knowledge of God's character that they would learn through the Exodus concerning that name. So the full meaning of it, or at least... Uh, that more robust meaning that comes from the burning bush on had not yet come to them. Uh, and yet they did use that, you know, Mo, uh, Abraham called that uh, mountain uh, on Moriah Jehovah-Jireh. Jehovah shall provide. Fifthly, did the serpent omit the name Jehovah on purpose when tempting Eve? We affirmed that. We showed from Genesis chapter 3. That in fact, earlier in the accounts of Adam and Eve, God is spoken of as Jehovah God. And even in the passages on either end of the temptation account, God is referred to as Jehovah God. But then Satan comes in and says in chapter 3 verse 1, has God indeed said. Now, just reflecting on that a little bit further than we did last time let's remember the term Elohim or God is used in Scripture. Now, fair enough, Adam and Eve didn't have any of those passages, but it's used in Scripture to refer to those who are not God, those who are not Jehovah. It's used to refer, as I said, to angels, to civil magistrates. It's used in a variety of ways. So it's not a a, a title that is used exclusively of God, and so it's very fitting that if Satan's going to try to tempt them to be like God, that it might be easier to tempt them to be like God than if he had said to, he would tempt them to be like Jehovah God. We assume Adam and Eve would have known something of the significance of the name Jehovah, of God's absolute unique transcendence. And so it's easier for Satan, who, who is seeking to persuade them to be like God, to tempt them to be like God, but not Jehovah. That probably, using that name Jehovah, might have reminded Eve of God's transcendence and that none of us will ever be like him in that sense. Uh, So we do believe Satan hates this word because Satan's original sin was pride, trying to be like the Most High, and this is the name that communicates God's supremacy, that he is the Most High, and in that superlative, unique sense, and so Satan hates it, uh, perhaps more so than other names of God, and so he removed it. Sixthly, should the name Jehovah be abandoned due to the Germanic J? We said we deny that, uh, because the, you know, the people who argue for this, it's interesting, they'll, they'll say, well, you know, the Jews didn't say Jehovah, and then of course we say, well, Who are the Jews you know there was no J in Hebrew so they're the Yehudiites you know you're inconsistent how could you possibly be so offensive and um, insensitive as to refer to them as Jews well we apply the English language as it's commonly used so we refer to the Yehudiites as Jews we refer to Jerusalem as Jerusalem we use the term Jesus to refer to Yeshua. We use the term Jeremiah to refer to Jeremiah. You know, we, we, we speak the English language, English language as it has been handed down to us. Again, the original 1611 King James, people may have been pronouncing that as Yehovah with the I and the J being interchangeable. Uh, but for us, it's Jehovah. That's what's been passed down to us as the translation of God's name. Uh, it may not be a perfect transliteration, but, uh, neither are numerous other names. You know, you read in the old Testament, it says Egypt in Hebrew, it's Mizraim, you know, but are we going to accuse, uh, translators of, of dropping the ball on, 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 account of that? No, uh, there are, this is the translation historically, and we accept the German J sound on all these other names. So we, we need to be consistent, uh, Seventhly, uh, should the name Jehovah be abandoned in favor of Yahweh due to alleged discrepancies in the Masoretic vowel points? We deny, we emphatically deny that. Now, here's the conspiracy theory that is very prevalent out there. Whether it's true or not, it is a conspiracy theory, and it's important for us to recognize that doesn't make it false. A lot of conspiracy theories probably true, but this is a conspiracy theory. This conspiracy theory says this, we have the Hebrew Bible in the Masoretic text. And that's been passed down to us from the Jews who were recipients of the oracles of God. And they had a meticulous, very, very detailed process of uh, transcribing and of of, uh, taking one scroll and letter by letter, Uh, transmitting uh, the Bible down through the ages with exact precision, even counting up the number of letters in each book and so on and so forth to the point probably even of superstition to an extent. But uh, the Masoretic text handed down to us from the Masoretes. And if you look at our later editions from, say, the Middle Ages, the the manuscripts of the Old Testament Hebrew that we have, and you compare it with what was discovered at the Dead Sea, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, and nearly a thousand years in between, and you can see just the the great precision and accuracy as God preserved his word over many, many centuries through this uh, process and eventually through the Masoretic text. Now, in the Masoretic text, uh, you have consonants, like B, C, D, F, right? Consonants, Wheel of Fortune, you know, by buy a vowel, consonants. Uh, and underneath and in between the letters, uh, and they read from right to left, um, you, you have vowels, vowel points that are there to express the vowel sounds. A, E, I, O, U, sometimes Y, you know, a vowel. So these things are, are in the Masoretic text, and the prevailing theory here We haven't gotten to the conspiracy yet, by the way. Everything I've said so far is pretty well known and accepted. Um, But the conspiracy says, first of all, those vowel points are uninspired and were added by the Masoretes. And so we don't really have the vowels because Moses didn't use vowels. Uh, Hebrew only had consonants and the vowels were added later by the Masoretes. Uh, and so we don't really have a, a, an infallible, inspired knowledge of the vowels, which cause those consonants to actually form intelligible words and sentences. But they're uninspired, they say. And then they say that uh, when you look at the, the name Jehovah, the word Jehovah or Yehovah in Hebrew, that the Mazarites, because they adopted the Jewish superstition, that they shouldn't be using the name Jehovah because they don't want to use it irreverently, so they don't use it at all. And instead, uh, Jews today will often say Hashem, meaning the name, but the Masoretes would have said Adonai, which means Lord or Master. And so when they came across the Tetragrammaton, vav Vavhe, Yehovah, in the Hebrew, they would read the vow. They, they would read Adonai, and to remind them to do that, so goes the conspiracy theory. Um, they changed the vowel points for Yehovah, which, which they would say it's not even Yehovah. really Yehovah has the vowel points for Adonai, and so we don't actually know what the original vowel points were, because of course, the vowel points are of uh, human ingenuity, and so we don't really know how to pronounce it, or we're pretty sure if you, if we did know how to pronounce it, it would be Yahweh. And so you see this proliferation of the name Yahweh substituted for Jehovah. Um, now, the evidence for this is there's no smoking gun. There's no clear evidence for this. First of all, uh, we need to be careful when we dogmatically assert that the vowel points are uninspired. How do you know that? Um, We know that there's pretty much consensus on the fact that Moses did not use vowel points, okay? Uh, That originally in Hebrew, when it was a living language, they did not use vowel points. Uh, But the fact of the matter is when they came back from the captivity and people were beginning to speak the language of the Chaldeans and then people were beginning to uh, speak uh, the, the common language of the Jews in, in Jesus' day, Aramaic, there were some linguistic changes that would have created uh, a, something of a distance between the average person and their common language around the dinner table and the language of Scripture. And you think about the Scriptures being written over the course of uh, 1,400 years or so, 1,500 years, you, um, or for the Old Testament, maybe uh, over 1,000 years, You can see different dialects. I mean, there's already these challenges that exist, Uh, but it, it makes sense that the vowel points would have been added under Ezra when the Old Testament church compiled the Old Testament canon and finalized it. It makes sense that while Hebrew was a living language, they didn't need the vowels, but when it became less of a living common language and people were speaking Aramaic, that became necessary to set in place the precise vowel points. Otherwise, it's really hard to make any definitive sense of any Hebrew sentences or uh, passages in the Old Testament. You need the vowels to make sense of it. And so it makes sense. And there are, you know, John Gill, the great commentator, has written a treatise on this. Some other Reformed theologians have done the same. But it's understood in many classical Reformed uh, circles, that the vowel points are inspired, and that enables us to say the Masoretic text actually reflects what is inspired, and so therefore scholars can't just, when they don't like a verse, oh, we'll put in different vowel points. That really causes problems for our doctrine of Scripture, being infallible and inspired, if it can mean all sorts of things, depending on these humanly added Vowels that can change the meaning of words and sentences. It becomes a wax nose. So let's be careful that we're not dogmatic like many Reformed people are. Oh, the vowel points are uninspired. Are you sure about that? Seems to make a lot of sense theologically. And when Jesus says not a jot or tittle of the law has passed away, a jot is a yod and, and it functions as a vowel in some cases. So um, now, the, the other concern about this is that the substitute name Yahweh was common, as, as is a consensus even among, even among those who don't buy into the conspiracy theory, the name Yahweh was common among the Samaritans. Now, uh, this theory that Yahweh represents the more proper pronunciation of this name first appeared in in quote unquote Reformed or Protestant circles in 1599. It was debated for centuries. Uh, There are some references among the early church fathers to the the pronunciation Yahweh, which was common among the Samaritans. But really the founding father of the modern consensus of this theory is the German scholar Gesenius, who popularized this new theory in 1833 in his uh, Hebrew lexicon that he published which uh, was translated then later, I guess, into English in 1857. So, middle of the 1800s, Gesenius, the German scholar, he popularizes this idea that it's not Jehovah, that's the Valpoint conspiracy, but rather it should be Yahweh or Yahweh. And he cites Theodoret of Cyrus, who, was a, uh, who is a church father who made reference to the fact that the Samaritans pronounced it in that. Manner. Now, one of the problems here is that we don't disagree that the Samaritans pronounce it in that way, but in Josephus, uh, it's when when the uh, Jews and Samaritans were under persecution from Antiochus Epiphanes during the intertestamental period, uh, there was pressure from the Greeks to conform their religion to the common religion of the empire. And the Samaritans caved into that, and there's evidence in Josephus and in certain coins that indicate that the Samaritan temple was renamed as the temple of Jupiter. Or in Latin, another form of that is Jove. You know, uh, Sherlock Holmes, by Jove, I've got it. Okay, Uh, Jupiter is... Jove, and then pater means father in Greek, Father Jove. That's what Jupiter means. Not just the planet, but the god, Zeus, Jupiter. Father Jove. And they devoted their temple to Jove, Jupiter. And they began to speak of him. And and what is Jove in Latin? Yahweh, Yahweh. Okay? So there are concerns about the fact that Are we really going to want to go back to the Samaritan pronunciation given these kinds of things that were taking place? And it's interesting, Gesenius, in the same lexicon that has been so influential and everybody's buying into this conspiracy theory, he says this in that same lexicon. Quote, I suppose this word to be one of the most remote antiquity. In other words, I suppose this word, Yahweh, to be one a word, of the most remote antiquity. So he says this is old, it's very old, it's of the most remote antiquity. Perhaps of the same origin as Jovis, Jupiter, and transferred from the Egyptians to the Hebrews, end quote. So Gesenius is operating under this uh, assumption of an evolutionary view of religion, and those who buy into this kind of scholarship, which is just as popular as the conspiracy theory itself, uh, the, the liberal scholars who originated and popularized and promote this theory are doing it because it fits in with an evolutionary view. Not that Jehovah arose at the burning bush when God himself appeared and revealed that he is I am that I am. No, they say it doesn't arise from that. That's just uh, the incorrect vowel points of the superstitious uh, and overly scrupulous Masoretic scribes. No, this comes from the pagan world—the Egypt and Greece and Jove and Jupiter—and and so the guy who popularized it actually is explicit that this is Jove. Yahweh is Jupiter. It's Yahweh. Yahweh Jupiter, Father Jove. Uh, Gessenius, the founding father of the Yahweh perspective, at least in modern times. So recognize that there are a lot of people that are promoting this theory that may not realize its origin and may not realize all the implications. Now, does that mean we should go around condemning people? Oh, you're worshiping a false god. No, I mean, Yahweh, if that's the best we can do, this is an in-house debate among people that love Christ and love the Lord. And we're just, I'm just saying I don't think this is the best way to do it. And I think there's some problems with the origin of this sort of Samaritan Pronunciation, though it has gra- gained a lot of prominence in our day. Uh, we don't believe that the name of God originated from the pagans as part of an evolution of religion, but that God n- gave this name in connection with the burning bush. And if you adopt the Yahweh theory, uh, it's interesting, I'd, I'd love to see it, but uh, it doesn't seem like there's anywhere near the same kind of momentum, if any in terms of actually arguing that the name itself comes from I am that I am that seems it seems as though the Yahweh perspective is, is taking a whole different view of the origin and other famous advocates of this theory have said Yahweh actually doesn't come from I am that I am it comes from the idea of God as a creator and they change the tense of the verb in Exodus 3 to say well it comes from it, uh, this idea that God is creator not God as the I am Now, one other point that I'll make just for myself, you know, in terms of where can we go in the Bible that as common men and women, this will make more sense for us? Well, I would say this, just to cut through the conspiracy theories, um, there there are many instances where the Old Testament people of God give their children names that have God's name in it. So clearly they were not superstitious about... Making mention of the name of Jehovah, in fact the Bible says that we're commanded to make mention of the name of Jehovah that 's a constant command in the Old Testament and beyond uh, so they have these there are these theophoric names uh, Joshua is Yehoshua uh, Jehoshaphat Jeho- Jehoshaphat the Lord is judge or judgment uh, we could go on and on, uh, Jehosadak, Jehoshaphat, I mean, there's all these names, and they all, these theophoric names, they begin with Jeho, Jehoshua, uh, Jonathan is Jehonatan, Jehoshaphat, Jehoshua, now, nobody I've ever heard, and I admit I haven't checked uh, InfoWars, but I don't know of anybody with the conspiracy view that thinks that the vowel points were changed for the theophoric names, nor anyone who's ever made that case, ever. Okay? So this is not a thing, as far as I know, happy to be corrected if somebody's found uh, that the conspiracy is broader than just God's name. Uh, but the fact is, that why, why is it that these theophoric names don't begin with Yahweh, they always begin with Jeho, right? Yehovah, Yehoshaphat, Yehoshua, Yehonatan, Yehozadak. It's never Yahweh, it's always beginning with the beginning of Jehovah with the vowel points that fit in with the Tetragrammaton as it appears in the Masoretic text. Now again, I'm not a Hebrew scholastic genius, but it doesn't make a lot of sense um, that all these Hebrew names would have the name Jehovah in them if Jehovah is the wrong pronunciation. Uh, It seems like the theophoric names actually predate the superstitious scrupulosity of the Masoretes in a day and age when people did make mention of Jehovah and that's how they pronounced it, Jehoshaphat, Jehonatan, Jehoshua or Yeh, as opposed to the German J. Next question, is the Greek rendering of Jehovah as Kurios or Lord in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament? and subsequently in the Greek New Testament, is that rendering of Jehovah as kurios or Lord in those places illegitimate or inauthentic? We deny. So we're not saying that the Septuagint should be discarded and that the New Testament erred, obviously, in, in translating Jehovah into Greek as Lord. This was the common rendering and the common version in the first century stemming from the Septuagint, We can see that in in the work of translation, there's good, better, best. And the New Testament authors are just going on what they receive from the Septuagint. This is the common way of referring to Jehovah as kurios or Lord. And so whenever the New Testament quotes the Septuagint or or adopts some of its phraseology, uh, we should not lay stresses on uh, the difference between the Greek Old Testament and the Hebrew. The Hebrew is the standard for our Old Testament. The Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, even when it's quoted by the apostles, sometimes disagrees with the Hebrew Old Testament. But the apostles never quote those verses that disagree in instances where they're actually emphasizing the disagreement. So in other words, I might quote, uh, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, I might quote from the King James Version because it's the common version. And there might be a less than helpful element in that translation of that verse. But I'm not quoting or emphasizing the part that's less than helpful. I'm emphasizing the part that is accurate. And you see examples of this, such as in Psalm 40, when the author to to the Hebrews quotes Psalm 40, and instead of saying, ears you have dug out for me, or opened for me, he says, a body you have given me from the Septuagint there and um, even in that case where he is actually so so let me say this I got ahead of myself there Um, most cases they don't emphasize the difference even in a case like that where, where Paul does emphasize that the word body is used in the Septuagint what's he doing he's using it as a paraphrase he's saying he's not saying that the Hebrew is wrong and that we should supplant the Hebrew with what's in the Greek Old Testament but what he's saying is if you have an ear you have a body so he's saying that the Messiah would come as the perfect sacrifice for sin and if he has an open ear then he has a body so The the Septuagint is very loose. It's like the NIV or the New Living Translation, or not, not quite the message, but it's very loose in some passages. And even where Paul does draw attention to where it differs with the Hebrew, you can see he's just appealing to the general thrust of it as a paraphrase. But at no point should we ever take a quotation from the New Testament in Greek about the Old Testament and then go back and change the Hebrew the Hebrew is the authentic and the Greek is authentic for the New Testament um, and, and I realize I haven't explained that the clearest way but I'll leave time for questions in a moment but w- w- the Hebrew is still the standard and so in the Hebrew it is yud-he-vav-he. in the Hebrew it is not Lord it is Jehovah So, Lord is an equivalent. Lord is helpful. It's not the worst translation. It's a decent one, and it helps us when we come to the New Testament looking at the Lord Jesus Christ. So, there's a lot to be said for L-O-R-D in all caps. We're not going to be critical of it, but is it the absolute best? Listen to Gerhardus Voss, the great Bible scholar. Quote, There is no excuse for continuing the total non-use of the sacred name now that Jehovah has through the American revision, made its reappearance in our Bible, end quote. Now, to be fair, Voss holds to the Yahweh theory. Um, But his point is, there are modern translations in his day that are using Jehovah, the American revision, for instance, and he's saying that would be better, even though he thinks Yahweh might be more helpful, he says better to use Jehovah, better to, to distinguish the divine name as it appears in the Hebrew. Uh, it's not critical of the New Testament or of the Septuagint, or maybe he is, but I'm just saying, let's all be friends, but, but this is better. This is better to say Jehovah is often more helpful. All right, next question. Does the New Testament Greek uh, rendering of Jehovah as kurios, or Lord, necessitate the removal of Jehovah from English Old Testament translations and Psalters? We deny So here's the other end of the spectrum, okay? Uh, Some people are saying the word L-O-R-D in all caps is illegitimate. Let's reject it all and go with Jehovah. And, and, you know, that's extreme. Uh, Also, there are people who say, well, the New Testament says Lord, so let's just keep L-O-R-D in all caps, and we really shouldn't have Jehovah appearing anywhere in our Old Testament translations into English or in our Psalm books. So let's just get rid of Jehovah because the New Testament doesn't use that word. Well that's another extreme. Uh, as Voss points out, the Old Testament scripture is scripture in its own right and it uses yud Vavhe. So let's let's favor that. Let's consider that. If that's an opportunity that we if there's an opportunity to do that. Let's support that, I think is what Voss is saying. Uh, doesn't mean we're overly critical of L-O-R-D, but it could be better. Finally, in an increasingly syncretistic and pluralistic age, would an English rendering of Jehovah more effectively convey the biblical doctrine of God than the more generic title, Lord? We affirm. In a pluralistic age where people talk about, oh, the good Lord told me this, or you know, I thank the good Lord for that, or people speak of God, and yet we have no idea which God they're speaking of. God bless America, which God? Who are we even talking about? White House prayer meetings that are uh, ambiguous religiously, and we live in a syncretistic, a pluralistic age in which if we were to have an English rendering of Jehovah in our Bibles or in our Psalter, then Honestly, I think many of us would be shocked at how often this word appears. And we'd say, wow, we're, if we added that to our psalm book, we'd say, wow, that, that word Jehovah is appearing again and again and again, verse after verse after verse, almost making us uncomfortable because it seems strange, but it's really not strange. We're the ones that are strange if, if we feel uncomfortable speaking of God with a distinct name to identify the God of the Bible and distinguish Him from all other gods so there could be a helpful use of this and there are some who believe that the Septuagint was pressured the the uh, scholars who translated the Old Testament into Greek uh, centuries before Christ that the makers of the Septuagint were pressured by the Greek empire to say Lord, or kurios, instead of the distinct name. We don't know that for sure, but you could see how pluralism would be well served with generic terms for God rather than specific ones. So again, without condemning the current practice, uh, there is something to be said for the value of Jehovah as opposed to Lord in our contemporary situation. Now, let's apply these things. First, with respect to this name Jehovah, you need to know this name. When Moses went to Pharaoh, Pharaoh infamously said, who is Jehovah that I should listen to him? Psalm 9 verse 10 speaks of the people of God uh, as those who know God's name and the enemies of God as those who do not know his name. Uh, In Malachi, believers are those uh, who know God's name and who Meditate on his name and speak to one another concerning his name. Uh, Malachi 3.16, Then those who feared Jehovah spoke to one another, and Jehovah listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him. For those who fear Jehovah and who meditate on his name were to remember it, to meditate on it, to think about it, to think about the meaning of it. I am that I am. The one who is and who was and who is to come. Interestingly, the Greek New Testament authors definitely draw our attention to the meaning of Jehovah when they repeatedly say, especially John and Revelation, he who is and who was and who is to come. Know this name. Trust this name. Uh, the name of Jehovah is like a strong tower. The righteous flee into it and find safety. Uh, Isaiah 50 And verse 10. This is a messianic prophecy here for the most part. Isaiah 50, verse 10. Who among you fears Jehovah, who obeys the voice of his servant, who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of Jehovah and rely on his God so we need to trust this name we need and in hebrew the word that's often used for trusting is to take refuge in you see that in our psalm book oftentimes you'll see in your prose version of the psalm that it says trust and in your psalm book it'll say take refuge or find a hiding place that's the idea in many cases the word trust in hebrew we're to take refuge in this name It's for His name's sake that He is eternal, unchangeable, always faithful. It's for His name's sake that He redeemed Israel. It's for His name's sake that He redeems us. It's for His name's sake that He never leaves us nor forsakes us and that He leads us in righteous paths for His name's sake. So trust in this name. Trust in, again, what it signifies and what it teaches. Thirdly, call upon this name. We're told in Genesis 4.26... That in the days of uh, Enosh, Enoch, one of those guys, uh, Genesis four twenty six. In the days of Enosh, then men began to call on the name of Jehovah. Call upon this name. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, the name of Jehovah, Joel chapter 2. It's applied to Christ in Romans 10. Shall be saved. And in particular... Uh, Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 55. Listen to what we find there. I called on your name, O Jehovah, from the lowest pit. You have heard my voice. This is a name we can call upon and know that God is everywhere present. He's all sovereign, everywhere present. He hears us, He knows us, He loves us. He is unchanging and unchangeable. Call unto Him from the lowest pit of sorrow and affliction. Love this name, love this name. Uh, and again, I, the, I, I'm, I don't want our polemical aspect to take precedence here. I'm not saying love this name and therefore say Jehovah every time and if you say Lord, you're subpar. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, we can say Lord as long as we know what we're saying and, and we know it implies Jehovah, the one who is, was, and is to come. I am that I am. Again, we can express it even even if if Yahweh is is our best judgment of what this should be. we We can love this name. Psalm 511, but let all those who rejoice, let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. He goes on, let those also who love your name be joyful in you. We're to love this name. Uh, we're to take pleasure in this name. Psalm 119, verse 132. Look upon me and be merciful to me as your custom is toward those who love your name. Your name, Song of Solomon, the bride says, your name is as precious, sweet-smelling ointment poured forth the beauty of God's name the delightfulness of God's name Lord our Lord Jehovah our Lord how excellent is your name in all the earth is that how you feel about God's name and take this name in marriage uh, the, the bride takes the name of her husband in our culture and the Bible warns us against taking the name of God in vain bearing it in vain wearing it in vain We can receive God's name placed upon us in baptism or in the benediction, number six, place my name on them when I bless them. Uh, We can receive that name from this covenant of marriage in the visible church and we can profane it and we can live a life that's totally inconsistent and the Gentiles will blaspheme God's name because of us. But no, we're to take this name and we're to reverently fear this name and love this name and wear it and bear it before the watching world and glory in the fact that we are Jehovah's people and, and we've been inscribed on the palm of His hand. And as Isaiah says, we, we, we covenant to be the Lord's, the God of Jacob, and uh, we're, we're accounted as Jehovah's own people. Take this name. Use it reverently Uh, our father which art in heaven hallowed be thy name don't take it in vain don't use it in vain use it by all means don't be like the superstitious uh masoretes Uh, sadly they're they're burning in hell and yet they did so much to preserve the word of god and to copy the scriptures they had that scripture with them they were you know eating sleeping breathing it 24-7, 24-7, all these things, and yet uh, they, they didn't use the name of God. They didn't understand it. They didn't wear it and bear it and reverently fear it and take refuge in the name of Jehovah. We need to be reverent about it. Uh, we need to pray with the psalmist, Psalm 86 give me an undivided heart. Unite my heart to fear your name. Uh, we're told even that... When sinners come to repentance, even when the gospel bears fruit from the east to the west. Isaiah 59, verse 19. So they shall fear the name of Jehovah from the west and His glory from the rising of the sun. And we need to approach this name. God in Deuteronomy and throughout the scriptures puts His name in the place of His worship. He sets His name at the tabernacle. He places His name at the temple. Jesus says, Where two or three gather together in the church in My name, there I am in your midst. Approach this name. Uh, Jehovah has set His name in the midst of His congregation. Approach Him there. And as I said, through baptism, and through the benediction, and even through the Word of God, as it's proclaimed to us, and we call upon the name of the Lord, and we use it and make mention of it and bear it in public worship. Approach this name. Finally make mention of this name. I've already said this several times, but just listen to some of these passages. Isaiah 26, 13. O Lord our God, Jehovah our God, Master's, besides you have had dominion over us, but by you only we make mention of your name. Uh, By analogy, the apostles were commanded to no longer preach and teach and do miracles in the name of Jehovah Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. They refused. How did they do it? By the strength of God. By you only we make mention of your name, though we're oppressed by these various tyrants. Isaiah 62:26 tells us that in the new testament church we will be those who make mention of the name 62 verse 6 of Isaiah I have set watchmen on your walls O Jerusalem they shall never hold their peace day or night you who make mention of Jehovah do not keep silent And of course my personal favorite Zechariah 14 and verse 20. This is a, a passage that um, Greg Bonson used to go around. You know, preachers, uh, popular preachers, preachers like him, they get invited to conferences and churches and they speak in many different pulpits. And one of his favorite uh, roving sermons that he would preach was from Zechariah uh, chapter 14 and verse 20 a prophecy concerning the advance of the kingdom in the New Testament age uh, where it says this, In that day, holiness to Jehovah shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in Jehovah's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to Jehovah of hosts. Everyone whose sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day, there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of Jehovah of hosts. You can see the beauty here that all of life becomes holy for the Christian in and through Christ. Everything we think and say and do, we do all for the glory of Christ. And uh, all of life is holy devoted to him even as the whole not that we don't have unique holiness and sacredness in the word and sacraments and public worship but but every aspect of life uh, we ought to be offering ourselves as a holy and acceptable living sacrifice and recognizing God's ownership over everything in our lives such that even in a godly society as it were you would have holiness to Jehovah Uh, with all the correct vowel points and nobody's trying to hide it and say Hashem or Adonai or whatever. It's not holiness to Father Job. Holiness to Jehovah shall be engraved even on the bells of the horses. I'm not going to make any analogies with bumper stickers. But the point is, every aspect of life, not in a cheap way, but in a deeply meaningful and comprehensive way, is subjected to the glory of the Lord. Does anyone have any questions before we pray? Yes. How using some derivative of the name Jehovah for another person not to the Lord's name? Good question. So um, Jehovah, let's take um, uh, the name Jonathan. Uh, let's take the name Joshua. Uh, Jeho- Jehovah saves. Yeho-shua. Jehovah is salvation. So it's a theological assertion. So it's not that they're naming their children Jehovah, which I think would be inappropriate, and then we can get into the question of, you know, uh, Hispanic folks naming their children Jesus and all of that. I, 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 I didn't study to answer that question. But, um, of course, Joshua is is a Jesus as well. But, but I think that it's a theological assertion. Um, Jehoshaphat, Jehovah is... Judge or Jehovah performs judgment, um, and so on and so forth. So, I think as long as it's an assertion of a truth about Jehovah, Jehovah, Jireh, you know, Abraham named a place, I think it's not a vain use of God's name. But that's an excellent question because, you know, we do think about that, you know. Um, Again, would you name your child Jesus? Uh, I would not. And uh, but I'm not, I, I'm not prepared to give a comprehensive reason for that. I would say certainly in English, Joshua and Jesus are different. So you can say Joshua without saying Jesus. And therefore you allow that term of devotion to maintain its uniqueness. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's just meant to be a theological assertion that includes Jehovah's name, but not meant to say my child is Jehovah. Any other questions? Yes. As far as I'm aware, the authorized is the only English translation that retains Jehovah even before the in Genesis 22. It has it, but I'm just curious why uh, it's not. It doesn't seem consistent in the Old Testament. So, uh, great question, um, and I apologize—we're kind of going over time here—but great question. So, very succinctly, as, as much as possible, uh, I would say there are other translations, such as the ASV such as the modern King James Version, which you can get on eSword on your app, and it'll say Jehovah every time. So the rest of it is hit or miss, but that's kind of interesting to have that. So there are some translations that will say Jehovah every single time. Um, They're more or less mostly mom and pop translations, but as Voss pointed out, the ASV would be one. I think it's the ASV. It could be the RSV. But it's one of those, one of those two, could be the RSV. But but the issue is, why is it that modern translation, or why is it that the English translation sometimes will say Jehovah or Yahweh, but 98% of the time they say Lord? The reason is some passages would not make any sense. And so the, the King James translators are saying, okay, we're gonna follow the Septuagint and the New Testament and just say Lord, but it would make no sense whatsoever in a passage where it says, uh, you alone, they will know that you alone are Jehovah and you just use a common title. There are some emphatic references to the name of God that are so emphatic that even I would say in our blue psalm book, it does say Yahweh seeking to use the divine name in Psalm 83. That would be one of the instances But there's another instance in our blue psalm book, I want to say it's from Psalm 68, where it says something like, your name is Lord, or something where they don't use Yahweh or Jehovah, and it does sound a little uh, less refined as it might if they would have used the divine name in terms of the context, so that's why, they're just trying to be faithful to the context even when they prefer lord they see some passages just sound kind of clumsy otherwise yes uh, and yeah it is a asv that uses jehovah consistently asv uses In jehovah ASV, i do have a question about just that translation i know that That's a great point. Yeah, I personally would not be a big fan of the ASV. So the modern King James version, MKJV, which I think was put out by J. Green, maybe. Um, Again, it's sort of a mom and pop version, you know. As soon as they started where you could like print your own t-shirts it just went on from there people have their own bibles but he's a pretty good scholar so it's a good version and it's based on mostly on the king james in terms of it's not a lot of variation uh, from the king james but um, the mkjv modern king james version is pretty helpful i refer to that a lot but the asv does have uh, the critical text theory behind it so i would not necessarily encourage especially in the new testament the ASV. Uh, yeah, thank you for pointing that out. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say switch over to the ASV. I'm not saying switch over from what you've got, King James, New King James. I'm just pointing out with Voss, if there comes a time when we can choose good, better, best, this would be better to have Jehovah in there, but we're not going to sit around complaining about that. Some, some countries don't even have the Bible at all, so we should be thankful. Anything else? Yes. Thank you for asking that question. Every one of these questions is things that are very important to add before we conclude. So uh, there is a Jewish scholar, a Karaitic Jew, uh, who would hold to the Hebrew Old Testament, apart from all the oral traditions, so fairly conservative, kind of a sola scriptura type of a Jew. His name is Nehemiah Gordon. It looks like Nehemiah, but it's Nehemia. Tells you how serious he is about pronunciation. But he's a Jewish scholar that's very popular in uh, contemporary evangelical circles, and you have to be careful. At first, you might think that he's a Christian or a Messianic Jew. He is not. He does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but he is a Dead Sea Scrolls expert. He's very well respected in Israel, and he, he's a Hebrew scholar of scholars. He, he has a lot of helpful things to say. I think his website is called Nehemiah's Wall or Nehemiah's Wall, something to that effect. But if you look up Nehemiah Gordon and you promise not to buy into his bad theology on, on Jesus, uh, he has a lot of interesting things to say from a Jewish standpoint on Jehovah being the proper, or Yehovah being the proper uh, translation there as opposed to uh, Yahweh. And he would oppose, he's written an entire book, opposing the Jewish superstition of not saying the name of God. So he's an interesting guy just from a Jewish standpoint. You know, it's interesting, where do these theories come from? Because you, you, run, you, know, you run into the Jewish community, and of course they don't say the name, but the Jewish community is not, has not bought in hook, line, and sinker to the Yahweh view. So it's like, where is this coming from? You know, uh, largely from backslidden liberal European uh, apostate Christian scholars. That's where a lot of it comes from. But it's not even necessarily the most popular among the Jews themselves. Any other questions? Yes. Right. So please, please do not come out of here and all you can talk about is it, oh it's Jehovah, not Yahweh and it's Jupiter. And maybe I've already pumped you up to an extent that yeah, that's inevitable, but but it, it is important. I mean, God has given us his name. It's clearly important that we try to get the name right as best as we can and that we really scrutinize popular theories to make sure they actually have a an evidential basis. But but yeah, it's the name of God, the substance of who God is, as communicated in the name Jehovah, or if someone says Yahweh or whatever Lord, that's most important. So, uh, making mention of that, loving that, trusting, knowing, and uh, uh, fearing and approaching the Lord our God is is most important. Um, put it on the horse's bells, uh, even if you get the syllables wrong or the vowels. But but. It's, it's God himself that's most important. Thank you. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your truth and for your Holy Spirit who helps us to apply these things in ways that will not serve to actually detract from the very substance of the point that you're teaching us. Give us wisdom and balance. Give us charity in all things. Help us to cling to the truth and search the scriptures to know what is the case. uh, And yet to speak that truth in love and uh, enable us to beware, uh, to have armor of righteousness, not only on the left hand, but on the right hand as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.